Have you ever experienced something that is too good to be true? I don't know if those kind of things ever really happened to me, but they happened to somebody. I'm assuming they may have happened to some of you. You just can hardly believe it. It's turned out so well. <laughs> In fact, maybe somebody pranked you. Maybe that's what happened. Maybe it was some rare occurrence that happened years ago that you still remember. Maybe it was just somebody's innocent mistake that turned out in your favor. But it was too good to be true. I read this week about someone who was handed $5,000 cash in a McDonald's bag at a drive-thru. That kind of thing doesn't happen to me. But there you go, it's too good to be true, right? That's a lot of sausage McMuffins. And just so that you're not left wondering, he did return the money and captured it all on TikTok. But the too good to be true phenomenon is a thing, and if it's too good to be true, it tells us something about ourselves, doesn't it? It tells us that if it's too good to be true, we have a limit on what is believable. That there's an upper limit that I'm going to believe something that's medium, I might believe something that's sort of good, but it gets up there to be too good to believe and we really have a hard time believing what's on the really great end of the spectrum. I think the other thing that that too good to be true phenomenon tells us is that we should look around the world with suspicion. That you really can't trust things to be what they are. Which, when you put that together, does make it hard to believe the claims of Jesus. About who Jesus is and what He has done, really. This morning... Uh, We're going to look at a passage of Scripture where the disciples experience something that really is too good to be true. It's so good to be true that they, well, can't believe it. How's that? So I'm going to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 14. In Matthew chapter 14, I'll begin reading in verse uh, 22. Matthew 14, beginning... In verse 22, you recall that last week also we read the verses prior to this, and that was too good to be true. That was Jesus feeding uh, 5,000 men plus women plus children, too good to be true. And here we see it again, beginning in verse 22 of Matthew 14. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was alone. But the boat, by this time, was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, For the wind was against them, and in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. 
It's a ghost. They cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began, uh, uh, beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and t- took hold of him, saying to him, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. And when they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all the region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it, were made well. Does sound too good to be true. Both parts of it. The walking on the water and the being made well by simply touching the edge of his clothes. But we see here that Jesus' command over creation causes his disciples to worship. That really it is because of who Jesus is that the disciples cannot help but worship Him. Their faith in Jesus and their fear of God overcame their fear of the waves and their faith in themselves. This is a remarkable text, the first few verses really are, are, you might say, transition from the feeding of the 5,000 to the walking on the water. How do you get from there to here? He says that Jesus sent the disciples away. He ordered the disciples to leave. Now, I, I say that because if you remember, Jesus had something he wanted to do, Right? Beginning of verse four of chapter fourteen, Jesus wanted to be alone. His cousin John the Baptist, the one that told everyone he was coming, had been executed, and Jesus wanted to be by himself. He was interrupted by fifteen thousand people, and so he was unable to be alone. Now he sends the disciples away, and it's his job to dismiss the crowd. And it's interesting that in those two verses. 22 and 23, it mentions twice that Jesus dismissed the crowds. In other words, I think the crowd was difficult to get rid of. They thought it was a pretty good deal to hang out with someone who could just make bread appear and fish multiply. Let's stay here. In fact, John, uh, in his gospel, tells us that they wanted to make Jesus the king. And so their intent on making Jesus king meant that it was work to get them to leave. But Jesus set out and 
forced the crowd to go home. So he forced the disciples to leave and he dismissed the crowd and he went to the mountain to be alone. It's really what Jesus had wanted all along was to be alone. And so what does Jesus do when Jesus is alone? Does Jesus scroll his phone? Does he play solitaire? Does he text his friends? What does Jesus do when he's by himself? The text is really clear. Jesus prays. And somehow, for some reason, I mean, think about it. Jesus is the one, isn't he, that shouldn't need to pray. Jesus was the one who came um, with the software preloaded. He didn't need to have some kind of internet connection. He was good. But nonetheless, somehow, somewhere, it was important for Jesus to pray. And so what does Jesus do? And we, you remember what had happened. I mean, John the Baptist had been killed. He had been intending to be alone to grieve. So what does Jesus do when he's grieving? He prays. What does Jesus do when he's in the middle of a hectic schedule and there's 15,000 people milling about? He prays. What does Jesus do in between the moments of his greatest output, if I can say it that way, feeding 5,000 and walking on water? What does he do in the midst of that? He prays. What does Jesus do when he needs to pass the baton off to other people who will continue the movement after he's gone? What does Jesus do? He prays. What does Jesus do when he sees a storm coming? Maybe you're catching on now. He prays. And so I would just ask, how would we expect to possibly get by without praying? As though prayer was optional for us. Jesus needed it. But I can make it without it. I'm not sure that's how it works. I'm going to suggest that Jesus probably needed it less than I need it. And it was a priority for Him. That's why we as a church have made a fairly substantial effort this year already to pray together as a church. It appears to me that Jesus made it a priority and I think His church should make it a priority as well. And so, spending time with the Father, whether it's alone or whether it's with other people, is a priority for Jesus and a priority for His church. Well, the disciples are on their way across the lake and the crowd is on their way home. Jesus is up in the mountain praying. And then the action begins. Verse 25 uh, tells us that in the fourth watch of the night, He came to them walking on the sea. Now before we get into the walking on the sea part, right? I just want you to imagine the fourth watch of the night part. When it was evening, Jesus went up on the mountain. I don't know, sunset time, 6 o'clock 
8 o'clock maybe. The fourth watch of the night is 3 o'clock in the morning to 6 o'clock in the morning. These guys have been on their way across the lake for the, I don't know, almost 12 hours. How frustrating would that be? Against the wind all night. I mean, I just... I, no thank you. I just want to get there. I just want to sleep. I can just imagine, right? They're grousing on, you know, pulling on the oars, saying, what was so awfully important that Jesus had to send us across the lake now? And so, for the maybe close to 12 hours, they struggle against the wind and they don't get very far. And again, I just, I just think it's worth pausing on uh, things like this because I have the idea, maybe you have it, but I have the idea that if, I mean, you remember, Jesus sent them away. Jesus ordered them to go. What did they do? They did what Jesus said to do. Good for them, right? I have the impression that if I do what Jesus tells me to do, my life's going to get better. My life's going to get easier. Things will go well for me if I do what Jesus tells me to do. So what do they do? They do what Jesus tells them to do. And they can't get across the stupid lake. So why would Jesus send them on an errand like that that they really were unsuccessful at? Well, I think it was important. And, and, and see, the thing is, Jesus sends us things like that too. Gives us experiences like that that are important for other reasons than getting across the river or getting across the lake, excuse me. Because we think, yeah, the, the, the main thing is the destination. When Jesus sends them, knowing the storm's coming, He sent them there for a reason. And I think it was important for them to be terrified before they were rescued. It was more important that they get frightened by the storm than it was that they arrive at their destination. Because it was when they were frightened by the storm that they could encounter Jesus for who He is. And when they did those two things, encountered the storm and then encountered Jesus, it changed their hearts. It changed their hearts in a way that simply having a meal when Jesus fed 5,000 didn't change their hearts. It appears as though they went about business as usual even though Jesus had just done this crazy miracle feeding a crowd but once they get scared they're going down Jesus gets their attention and it appears that while Jesus was in firm control of creation fear controlled the disciples the storm as well as the bread were in submission to Jesus it's the disciples that had the problem But as Jesus comes walking on the water, the disciples get a glimpse of Jesus uh, that's unvarnished. 
It's as though Jesus sort of lifts the, the hood so they can see who He really is. The miracle of feeding the 5,000 walking on the water opened their eyes to who it is they're dealing with. That Jesus isn't like any other teacher. And they have this aha moment where they understand who it is they're really dealing with. You'll notice in verses 25 and 26, they, um, they talk about the sea. Jesus came walking on the sea. The sea was um, stormy. And then in verses 28 and 29, they talk about the water. And what was large and menacing now becomes present and immediate and urgent. Now it doesn't take a lot of imagination to realize what a stressful situation this would be. But one of the things I just want to remind you about is that the, the worldview of those um, disciples, the worldview of it, most everyone, is that the sea represented not just physical danger, but spiritual danger. That there was chaos around the sea. There's a spiritual dimension to the deeps that we don't think about. We think about the boat turning over or going down. Granted, they thought of that too. But they also perceived that there was this spiritual resistance that was going to um, take them under. This is the case, just so you kind of recognize this throughout the Bible. You should have the sea kind of as a marker of spiritual chaos when you read your Bible. In the beginning of the Bible, and at the end, the same thing is true. At the beginning, how does Genesis start? The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. There is this chaos at the beginning. And the Spirit of God was there. And it was going to take shape. Because God was going to command it to take shape. He was going to resolve the chaos problem. Well, how does the Bible end? The Bible ends this way. You may remember Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea, the sea was no more. Why would the Bible have the sea disappear? Because it represented the chaos and spiritual conflict. And in the end, it's gone. And we long for that day. I long for that day when chaos is done. Man, that would be a good day. And so here the disciples are in the midst of the sea, ready to go down. They see Jesus walking on top of the sea. Whether the threat was merely physical or as they probably imagined spiritual, Jesus effortlessly moves with it under his feet. And I just want you to, I mean, you guys are way ahead of the disciples, I'm sure. Right? You got the disciples in the boat, few of them are fishermen, not all of them, few of them are fishermen. 
And it's 3 o'clock in the morning to 6 o'clock in the morning. They're sleepy. They're, they're sleep-deprived. They're tired. And you've seen this. You've seen this. Sunday school lesson, little book, right? He just walks in the water, no problem. You're out there in the boat. Somebody's walking in the water. You say, oh, it's Jesus. You know what? Those things don't happen. They were not out there thinking, oh, I know this one. What do they say? It's a ghost. All they got is it's a ghost. And I'm guessing that if you were there, you'd probably think it was a ghost too. Because those things don't happen. Now, Peter gets credit for having a lot of faith, right? Jumping out of the boat. But notice his question. His question was not full of faith. It was, if it's you, is it you? If it's you, maybe it's you. If it's you, tell me to come. Jesus says, come. And Peter steps out, and his decision makes us all, like, worried and breathless. And we ask the question, would I do that? Then I ask the question, should he have done that? What is really going on with, Jesus, with Peter stepping out of the boat? Jesus says, come. He comes. He walks a little ways. And then, as you know, he looks around, realizes, I'm not supposed to be doing this. And he begins to sink. And at that moment, he prays, right? Jesus, save me. And Jesus reaches down his hand and grabs him. Jesus reaches down his hand and grabs him. I just want you to notice, Jesus isn't in the boat. It's not like he threw him a life preserver and pulled him to the boat. Jesus, standing on the water, pulled him out of the water so he would stand on the water too. And before they got in the boat, Jesus began to lecture him. Oh, you of little faith. The issue was the breakdown of Peter's faith. He rebuked his lack of faith. Why did you doubt? Well, I doubted because I'm walking on the water. That doesn't normally happen. And then, and only then, after he was saved and rebuked by Jesus, they get in the boat, and as soon as they get in the boat, the lesson's over. The winds cease. And it's quiet. In fact, it reminds me of earlier in chapter 8, verse 27, when even the winds and the waves obey Him. And so now, you're in a boat, and it's calm. And the sun's about to come up over the horizon. And in a matter of minutes, the disciples went from frustrated, straining at the oars, to fear of a ghost, to faith in Jesus. And then the text tells us to worship. And imagine that, just like that. You all came to worship this morning, thankfully without quite such trauma. To respond with proper affection and faith 
is to worship. Worship is seeing God for who He is and responding appropriately. And the text tells us they worshiped and said, surely you are the Son of God. Recognizing Jesus for who He is, they couldn't help themselves and they worshiped. I just want to stop here because this is really such a remarkable story and it would be so easy it's so easy just to not really think about how this might connect with our lives. But I want you to think about it for a moment. The first way that this may connect with us has to do with fear. Because the world around us is designed to make you afraid. Most of the news that you watch or read is designed to make you afraid in hopes that somehow you will make uh, some partisan decision that will make you less afraid. I'm a, I think the modern evangelical machine, if you can call it that, is a fear factory. So many, um, I don't know, political action committees, shall I say, tell you how you're uh, about to lose your religious freedom or some terrible thing happening on a college campus or there's a speech in Congress that m indicates everything's falling apart. So you just need to send money. And it encourages Christians. See, not just anybody. Not like the news. The news is going to make everybody afraid. But this particularly makes Christians afraid. And so if you subscribe to publications that ask you for money by making you afraid, you need to know that they're doing what the storm does, not what Jesus does. They are on a non-Christian errand. And so please unsubscribe. Because you have a Savior who walks on the water. You need to be pointed back to Him and back to Him and back to Him. Like Peter, keep your eyes on him, not on the waves, not on the things that would make you afraid. You don't need to be sitting there wringing your hands, wondering what will become of the church, what will become of the next generation, what will become of the world, because Jesus reigns over the storm, over the bread, over the world. You have Jesus, you're going to be okay. Fear is what happens when faith in Jesus is not real. And so I think this has to do with fear as much as it does with other things. I think it has to do with faith. Jesus rebuked Peter for his little faith. Uh, you know, I, I still remember the King James, O ye of little faith. But really, it's not O ye, it's just little faith. He gives him a nickname. Little faith. How many of us would Jesus talk to like that, do you think? Because this sermon is not really about Peter, but Peter does illustrate for us the difference between trusting in Jesus and taking your eyes off Jesus. He does remind us 
that we really have no idea what Jesus can do when we trust Him. And it does remind us that we will most assuredly sink without Him. And so, this is a call for us again and again and again to trust Jesus. Old-timers like me are excited about another Indiana Jones movie coming out before long. The best line in the trailer is completely ridiculous. It says this. It shows all kinds of action, of course. Then it says, it isn't so much what you believe as how hard you believe it. It isn't so much what you believe as how hard you believe it. Now, I don't know about you, but I can think of several things that I could believe that no matter how hard I believe it, it isn't going to make any difference. That's a ridiculous thing to say. Because what you believe, or shall I say, who you believe, makes all the difference. You can believe a lot of people who don't walk on water. Just going to say. What that means is that your job as a Christian every morning when you wake up is simple. You have to wake up and remember today to trust Jesus. To not take your eyes off Him. And if that were only easy, that would be great, right? So I guess maybe Indiana Jones does have something to offer because it is hard to go back and back and back and back to Jesus. And so you need to work hard, I need to work hard at believing Jesus. It does matter what you believe. And it is hard work to believe. And so just like the disciples didn't see it and didn't see it and didn't see it until they did. You and I need to go back and back and back and trust Jesus. And it may not be that easy, but it is important. Then the other place that I would sort of apply this, I think, has to do with worship. I don't know what you think you're doing here this morning or what a church gathering entails like why do we sing and why do we pray and why do we hear from God's word why does that happen every single Sunday without really variation I mean there there are no other meetings in the world where participants do those things what is it about a church gathering together that causes us to pray and sing and hear a speech about God's Word. Well, let me just say, what we're doing here this morning is what the disciples did in the boat, to the best of our ability anyway. To the best of our ability, we are attempting to see Jesus for who He is and to respond to Him appropriately. 
our songs of rejoicing, which they may have sung songs of rejoicing on the boat, I suppose. Our songs of rejoicing or allegiance or repentance are ways of expressing our affection for Jesus. They are our ways of responding appropriately to who He is. And that's what worship is. And so we call it a worship gathering when we're together because we are setting our hearts and minds to do this again. We'll do it again next week. We'll do it again the week after that because we need to remember that Jesus can be trusted. We need to remember that Jesus can command the storm. And we need to not get our eyes off of Him and onto other things. And so they pause, they worship. Surely you are the Son of God. They recognize Him differently after the fact. Well, if you go to the to end, there's three verses there, 34 through 36, that look like they don't go. The, the wind quits, they get across the lake, and Jesus heals some folks. That's what happens. He does that all the time, it seems like. Well, in these last verses, some interesting things happen. Because the disciples who spent their time with Jesus, when He came to them, they didn't recognize Him. But here, Jesus gets to the other side of the lake. I don't know if these people had met Jesus. I don't know if they'd heard him speak. I don't know if they just saw his picture in the newspaper. But they recognized Jesus. And ultimately, that's what it's going to take to recognize Jesus for who he is. All of us have to do that. While the disciples were people of little faith, here you get across the lake and the crowd, it's another crowd, the crowd sees Jesus, and what do they do? They think, if only I could touch the edge of his clothes. I mean, that, that's a weird idea. But it indicates, I don't need very much. I just need to be close. They believed all they had to do was get close to Jesus. And that, I think, is what we need to do as well. And so the faith that the disciples missed, this crowd had. And then both of these events, both Peter sinking in the water and these folks on the other side, um, both of these events end up with people being saved. The word translated there at the end of verse 36, uh, they were made well, or uh, is the same verb. It's a form of the same verb that Peter used while he was singing, Lord, save me. And people were saved by touching the edge of his garment as well as by grabbing his hand. And so I just want to suggest to you that you gather in church every week. You have whatever personal habits that you can create 
that help you recognize over and over and over because life is long and you've got to have you've got to have reminders all the time that Jesus can be trusted and that Jesus is king over all and so i just want to remind you that you have the same Jesus that the disciples had the same terrifying creation commanding Jesus that they had that walked on the water. And the reality is, he's too good to be true. They can, they can hardly believe it. And really, if you understood who he was, you'd have a hard time believing it too. And that, I'm afraid, is the work of being Christian. Because the work of being Christian, if I can say it that way, is to remember that you have Jesus. And all you need to do is get close to Him just like the townspeople did. Nothing special has to happen. You just get close to Him and touch the edge of His garment. And you're good. And you'll be fine. You'll be fine if you stay close. That really is the message. That's all. You'll be fine if you stay close to Jesus. And if you stay close to Jesus and see Him for who He is, you won't be able to help yourself. You'll worship Him. And that's what the worship in the church is all about. We remind ourselves who Jesus is. Otherwise, we'd be afraid. Otherwise, our faith would fail. But instead, we get perspective when we remind ourselves who Jesus is. And this has happened throughout the history of the church. Since the beginning of the church, believers have gathered to do the very thing we're doing this morning, reminding themselves that they serve a God who commands the winds and the waves, who died on a cross and rose again for them. And since the beginning, the church has been doing the very same things, the, the singing, the hearing from the Word, the praying, and they've been taking the Lord's Supper from the beginning. The meal of the Lord. That too is a physical way of reminding each other who Jesus is. <clears throat> and I can't help but say that Jesus gave us the script that He wanted us to remember. He said, this is my body which is broken for you. So who is Jesus? He's the one who gave His life in your place so that you might be reconciled to God. Will you believe Him? Will you worship Him? Then Jesus said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Who is Jesus? He's the one who enacted the new covenant. That new covenant is a relationship where God initiates with us to take out our stony hearts and give us a heart of flesh. Where He puts His Spirit within us, where He says, they will be My people and I will be their God. And so if you want God to be your God, you need Jesus. Will you believe Him? And will you worship Him? So I want to invite you to worship Jesus together now as we take the Lord's Supper. What we're going to do during the next 
song is that the band's going to come over there play a song, and uh, I want to invite you to come down the middle and take the elements and return to your seat on the outside. Make sure you get both cups. There's uh, one of juice and one of bread there stacked on top of one another. And so if you are a believer, if you've committed yourself to Jesus, such that you're here this morning to remind yourself that He, not just that He walks on water, but that He died and rose again for you, I want to invite you to participate with us. If you're here this morning exploring Jesus, trying to figure out about Him, you've come to the right place. This is really... This is really the message you need to hear, that Jesus died so that you might be reconciled with God. And it too is too good to be true, but I hope you'll believe it.